Amen. Well, take your Bibles with me, if you would, and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll be coming to the end of Philippians chapter 3 this morning, verses 17 through 21. As you're turning there, let me just kind of tell you where we're going in the next few weeks. Lord willing, uh, my father will be preaching next week. I'll be here. Uh, but my dad is coming to preach, which I'm very excited about. Uh, he's been battling uh, through pancreatic cancer, but uh, just praying that he has the strength to preach next week. And I'm really excited about that. I'm going to be here, and God has laid a message on his heart, and I'm excited about that, just being able to introduce him and uh, to be here with him. So he'll be preaching next week. Starting that first week in August, we'll jump into Philippians chapter 4. And I'm really thankful in God's providence how this worked out, because Philippians 4 is such an intensely practical chapter. Uh, talk about rejoicing and battling anxiety and fixing our mind on things that are right and true. And as we begin this next uh, church year and as college students are coming back into town, really looking forward to spending August, the beginning of September, finishing up Philippians in chapter 4. So be here, be engaged, uh, be ready. This morning, I'm going to begin by reading our text for today. So if you're there in Philippians 3 at verse 17, say amen. amen. The Apostle Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But... Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You may have heard about something called the Seven Summits. For a mountain climber, the greatest achievement is the achievement of the Seven Summits. It refers to the highest mountains in all seven continents. And the goal is reaching the seven summits is getting to the top of every one of those summits. It is a very difficult task. It's guessed that only about 400 people have ever accomplished this feat. It takes a lot of work, a lot of skill, and a lot of money. They estimate that with all the equipment and the things that are needed, it'll cost you between $150,000 to $200,000 to do it. At best, you may be able to do it in about five years, but it is the ambition of every great climber to climb the seven summits. Now, along the way, there's been a lot of lessons that have been learned by climbers. The most important of these lessons is this, that it is impossible to climb these mountains alone. Absolutely impossible. Just the difficulty of the journey, the things that are required on the journey, the things that a climber even needs and the support that he needs, it is impossible to climb them alone. But good climbers, even really good climbers, will also acknowledge this, that it's worth the money to pay a guide to come with you. Your chances of making it to the top of any of these summits is really based upon the people that you have with you. How good are the people with you? How experienced are they? And do you have a guide that knows what they're doing? Now, one of the most probably well-known group of guides are those at Mount Everest called the Sherpas. 
The Sherpa is a reference to an indigenous people group who are in Nepal and have been there for centuries, whose bodies are acclimated to the altitude. They know the climate. They know the terrain. And there are guides there that you can pay to help take you to the top that are experienced, that know the way. There is one Sherpa guide who has gone to the top of Mount Everest, the, mo Everest, the mount di most difficult of all of the summits, 21 times. Now, if that guy goes with you, your chances of making it are much better than making it without him. The truth is, if you're going to do it, you can't do it alone. You need some people going with you that know exactly what they're doing. Now, as strange as it might sound, our journey in the Christian life, from here in the moment Christ saves us to the moment that we reach glory, is much like accomplishing the seven summits. It's a great journey. It's a glorious journey. There is a lot of joy on the journey. I would say it's an exhilarating journey. And there are some incredible things that we experience along the way. But it is not an easy journey. Amen? It is a difficult journey. It is not simply a straight line to glory, but the reality is, is there is a lot of difficult paths and roads and experiences that we have along the way. And anyone that has really walked with Jesus, and anyone who has walked with Jesus over a period of time would say that exact same thing. They would say, there's no other life I would rather live. There's no joy like walking with Jesus Christ. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I have to tell you, it's a, it's a difficult journey. But there are a lot of challenges along the way. And God, understanding the journey better than we understand it ourselves and knowing what we're going to encounter along the way has made it very, very clear that if you intend to walk this journey with Christ to glory faithfully, you cannot do it alone. It's impossible. God has so designed the journey and so designed his people that we cannot make it to glory alone. And even more so, God has made it clear that if we want to faithfully walk this journey, we really can't do it without guides, without some people that have kind of walked the road ahead of us, some who have experienced the experiences that we're going to encounter. And the reality is, no matter what experiences that we encounter, there is someone else who has encountered something similar. And God has so designed it that he has given us the church of Jesus Christ filled with people who want to walk with us and alongside of us, and even by God's grace, some who have walked a little bit ahead of us and can help us and encourage us along the way. This is one of the reasons that I'm so thankful for a church like Prince Avenue, who is a multi-generational church, understanding that we don't need churches just filled with 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds. We need churches filled with generations, people who are just beginning the journey and people who've been on the journey for years because we cannot make it without these guides. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to help the Philippian church to understand. He's trying to get them to understand from the very beginning of this little book of Philippians that they were intended to walk this journey together. This is why in Philippians 1.27, which is what I believe the key verse to all of Philippians, he says that the goal is for you to strive together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. If you're going to be faithful, if you're going to make it to the end faithful, if you're going to advance the kingdom of God and be worth something for the kingdom of God, then you must be side by side with others who are on the same journey. And so Paul is pleading with them to get some people around them who know the journey, who will encourage them and motivate them, who are headed in the right direction. 
He's not only pleading with them because he knows it's essential to have people. He's pleading with them because he knows there's a lot of bad guides out there. There's a lot of people who might seem like good guides, but the reality is, is they're not walking faithfully with Christ and advancing the kingdom of Christ. Remember the beginning of chapter 3 when he says to look out for the dogs and look out for the evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh? He's saying there are people who want to take advantage of you and lead you astray. He says in our text this morning in chapter 3, verse 18, that there is many who I've told you about that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're walking, but they're not walking in the right direction. The only thing worse than no guide is a bad guide, following the wrong person, going in the wrong direction. And the whole point at the end of chapter 3 here is Paul trying to get us to understand by God's grace That in order for us to faithfully follow Jesus Christ, we must find and follow those who live for Christ and live for Christ's kingdom. If you were to say, Pastor Josh, well, what is the point of these verses? I would say it simply that way. That you must find and follow those who are living for Christ and for Christ's kingdom. God has designed it in such a way that you must have these people in your life. I say, well, what kind do we need? Well, Those that fit into those two categories. And I want to break that down for us this morning. Those who live for Christ and those who live for Christ's kingdom. So if you're taking notes, write this down this morning. The first thing Paul wants us to understand is this. Is that we must find and follow those who live for Christ. Find and follow those who live for Christ. This text begins with two commands. Direct commands. There's only two commands in this text. And they're right there at the beginning of 17. The first is this, join in imitating me. It is not a suggestion, it is a command inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul is saying, join in imitating me. The second command is this, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, don't just follow me, but follow those who follow the way that we're going. Specifically, commands us to find and follow those who are living for Jesus Christ. They say, well, listen, I I thought we were just supposed to follow Jesus. It it seems a little odd for Paul to say, maybe a little arrogant, to, to follow me and my example. Listen, you are to follow Jesus, but the reason God has given us a church is to surround us with those who are following Jesus who can follow Jesus with us. Again, we have to say over and over, you cannot make it faithfully on this journey if you're intending to walk this journey alone. So Paul says you've got some examples, and they've been given to you by God's grace. Find them and follow them. Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, the positioning of this verse matters. Because we've spent the last few weeks looking at verses 1 through 16, And it is in those verses when Paul gets extremely personal. He talks about his own journey. He talks about his life before Christ and his life in following Jesus Christ. And the example that he's calling us to follow is the example he just laid out for us in the beginning of chapter 3. So let me remind us of this, the example that Paul is calling us to follow. The first thing Paul tells us about himself is he tells us about his incredible discovery. That as he was 
seeking for a righteousness of his own, trying to do anything he could to be righteous before God, coming to the place where he realized that Paul could never be righteous enough for God, that in order for us to be righteous enough for the presence of God, it must be the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account that makes us worthy of God. He says, I discovered the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he said this, he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Paul said this, I I met Christ. And when I met Christ, I realized that every other pursuit is worthless. The only thing in life worth pursuing is Jesus Christ. It's a discovery that all of us have to make. We often make it after a series of bad decisions. We often make it after God wakes us up by his spirit and helps us to see that everything we've ever been pursuing was useless and foolish. And once we meet Jesus Christ, we come to that discovery that there's nothing in all of life worth pursuing more than Jesus Christ. Paul made that discovery. Now that discovery led to a new desire in his heart in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Here it is, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So Paul made this discovery of the value of Christ, and then in his heart was this new desire. God, I've discovered how good you are, and and I want to walk with you. I've discovered the misery of walking in sin and walking away from you. I I want to experience the joy of faithfully walking with you. I, I want nothing more than to know you. There's a new desire in his heart. As we talked about last week, desire is not enough. It must be accompanied with drive. And so Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He goes on and says, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here's the example Paul has laid out for us already. He discovered the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. He has been given by God's Spirit a new desire to know Christ, and then accompanied with that desire is a drive to go hard after Jesus. He's pursuing Jesus. He's making it his ambition to know Jesus Christ. And then after Paul tells us about his discovery, his desire, and his drive, he then says this, follow me. Imitate me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The example of those, listen, who understand that the gospel is not simply to be believed. The gospel is to be lived. This is so important for us in our cultural Christianity to understand it is not enough to say a sinner's prayer. It is not enough to believe the facts of the gospel. The truth is, is that Jesus Christ died so that we could die to sin. Jesus Christ rose so we could walk in newness of life. Jesus Christ ascended so the very Spirit of God might descend and fill us that we might walk in his power. With the fruit of the Spirit, knowing what it means to walk with Jesus, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is intended to live in you and to be manifested out of you. So Paul is saying, listen, I'm just just living the gospel. There's nothing else I'm just living the reality of the gospel. Christ is my king. I'm submitting myself to him, and I'm living for him. And he says, so I want you to follow me as I simply pursue Christ and give my best for him. 
follow those who are living for Jesus Christ. I love what he says here when he says, keep your eyes on those who, listen, who walk according to the example you have in us. It is a reminder, again, that the Christian life is a journey. That you're on this journey beginning the moment that Jesus saves you until the moment that he takes you home. Remember, as I said last week, God is not done with you until he takes you home. It is a journey. And again, we're looking for those who are not just saying the right things, but who are walking the right way. They're walking towards Christ. They're living for him. But look at this sad verse in verses 18 and 19. You feel the weight of what Paul is saying because he knows that there's those out there who are not doing this. For there are many, Paul says, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Paul is brokenhearted of this reality that there are those out there who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now I think... When we think about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, we, we think about those who are overtly walking in an evil manner, who are not in any way uh, talking about the Lord or thinking about the Lord, but that doesn't seem to be what Paul's saying here, particularly based on what he said at the beginning of chapter 3, I think given the whole context of the letter. What Paul is saying is that there's a lot of those out there who might say they believe the right thing, listen, but their walk is not pleasing to the Lord. They do not, you see what it says? They do not walk according to the example you have in us. They might say it, but they're not walking according to it. They're not really living for the cause of Jesus Christ. And as Paul thinks about this, he's brokenhearted over it. He says, I tell you right now, even with tears, there are those who are not walking according to the way of Christ. Now, I want you to think about something with me about the context of the Apostle Paul. This is really important. I think particularly in the day in which we live where if you don't like this church, you go to another church. And if this church has a bad reputation, we'll just go to another church with another reputation. But think, think about what Paul's doing. There is one church in Philippi. One church. Paul started that. We see the story of that in Acts 16. And people come to Christ and there's one church. And the reason Paul is pleading with them to get along, and we're going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks, because What this church says about Christ is what the community is going to believe about Jesus Christ. And if this church isn't getting along, there's no more testimony for Christ. And if members of this church aren't walking with Jesus Christ, then no one else is going to want to believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul, knowing that there's one church in Philippi, knows that they have to get along and know that they have to walk with Jesus because the reputation of Christ in the entire city is based on the faithfulness of that church. Can I say something to you this morning? There may be a hundred churches around us, but I'll still tell you this. The reputation of Christ is based upon the reputation of the Christians in the church in this town. So we go on Wednesday nights and we knock on doors. We say we're from Prince Avenue Baptist Church. Something probably comes into their mind when we think about Prince Avenue Baptist. What we want them to think is this. That's a church of people walking with Jesus Christ. Whether I believe it or not or like it or not, they're walking the walk. Paul says there are those in the church even who are not walking faithfully with the Lord and they're actually enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Because their failure to walk according to their confession, listen, undermines the very work that Jesus has done on the cross. 
He says, there are those and many who I've told you about, even with tears, that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so Paul is saying, I want you to see the difference. There are some who walk according to this discovery of the value of Christ and this desire and this drive to know him. There are others who simply talk about it, but they do not walk it. And so Paul says, I want to make sure you're finding, listen, this is a command to you from the Lord, find and follow some people who are living for Jesus Christ. They are living out the reality of the gospel in their daily life. You will not find someone who does it perfectly because none of us do, but at least find some people who are trying. Find and follow those who live for Christ. Paul goes on to say, not only find and follow those who live for Christ, and here's the second point, find and follow those who are living for Christ's kingdom. Write that down. Find and follow those who live for Christ, and then find and follow those who live for Christ's kingdom. He further describes these people in verse 19 and really talks about the fact that they're not living for the kingdom of Christ. Again, such a sad verse. In verse 19, it says, their end is destruction. That's obvious. Can you, can you hear me this morning? If you're not following Jesus Christ, your end is destruction. It's just as simple as it gets. Those who are trusting and following Jesus Christ will follow him all the way to glory. Those who are not trusting and follow him will be headed towards destruction. If you are not trusting and following Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only way to the Father, then why is it that you would expect at the end of your journey to find yourself in heaven? No, their end is destruction. But then he says this, their God is their belly. You know what that means? It means they're driven by the appetites of the flesh. It's not just talking about food, although it could be. It's talking about that all of us have these appetites. We all have these desires. We all have this pull of the flesh. And what it's saying is this. There are those who instead of submitting to Christ and his word are being pulled away by their fleshly appetites and desires. Who is it that's calling the shots in their life? They are. They are. There's nothing sadder than to watch someone who has said that they know Jesus Christ, but yet see them go through a period of time in which instead of trusting and following Jesus, they're following their own appetites and desires. And you tell me something with a, someone with a story like that, and I will tell you a story of heartbreak. When you start to allow your own ambitions, your own desires, your own appetites to determine the decisions you make, your end will be destruction. God is their belly. Listen, it says... And their glory is their shame. They glory in their shame. What does that mean? Well, it means the things they should be ashamed of, they brag about and rejoice in. A pastor friend of mine used to describe repentance this way. He says, true repentance is when sin, which used to be your friend, is now your enemy. Repentance is when sin, which you used to love and enjoy, now becomes something that you hate. It's not that you don't do it anymore. It's that when you do it, you hate it and despise it. You used to glory in it. You used to brag about it. You used to rejoice in it. But repentance is coming to the place in which you see sin for what it is. And instead of rejoicing in it, you're broken over it. I was just talking with a, a man on Friday who was telling me about the fact that that when he sins, he just he immediately hates it. He just grieves over his sin. Well, that's the Holy Spirit of God. And repentance is acknowledging that 
and turning from the sin and running towards Christ. But here's a group of people who still rejoice in their sin. They love their sin. They're holding on to their sin. This last thing it says, and their minds are set on earthly things. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you ask them what they really want and what they really desire, they're not going to tell you about kingdom advancing purposes. No, their mind is set on the things of this earth. They have not yet discovered that everything in this life is going to perish and they're not giving themselves fully to pursuing things that will last for all of eternity. No, their mind is set on earthly things. They do not live for Christ. And here's the distinction. They're also not living for Christ's kingdom. They're living for their kingdom. And Paul contrasts that. And, and look at verse 20. It begins there by saying, but in contrast to that, why should you be careful not to follow those people? Because our citizenship is in heaven. Now, you wouldn't know this by just reading, but this whole idea of citizenship is something we've already come to. It was there for us in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he says, let your manner of life be worthy, it's the exact same Greek word as right here, as citizens. What Paul is saying in Chapter 127 is this, act like a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, act like it. What he's saying is this, right here, the exact same word, we are citizens. What does that name mean? What does it mean? It means that, that our names have been written in, in that kingdom. We belong to that kingdom. We are home in that kingdom. Our treasure is in that kingdom. Our heart is in that kingdom. Paul says this, listen, when you submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, Christ became your king and your ambition became the kingdom. Your heart is there, your desires is there, what you long for is there. And although we are not always faithfully following and going after the kingdom the way that you should, at the end of the day, when you come to Christ, what you want most is that your life to matter for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, when he says this, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first the things that matter for eternity. Go after the things that last. Pursue Christ. Love people. Love God's people. Love lost people. Store up treasures in heaven. Live for the kingdom. That's the whole point of what he goes on to say. Is, Listen, our citizenship is in heaven. We, we're kingdom people. We're heaven people. And from that kingdom, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't wait for Jesus to come back. We long for the day in which we're reunited with the people of God. And more than that, we can't wait the day in which we're united with Jesus Christ. You know, there's so many wonderful things about heaven. We think about the absence of fear and the absence of darkness and all of the sin to be done away with. And we talk about a lot. We can't wait to see Grammy and Papa in heaven someday and we can't wait to be reunited with all of the people that have gone before us. And praise God, that's wonderful and that should motivate us. But the truth is, the reason we really want heaven is because we want Jesus Christ. That in, listen, in our walk with Jesus Christ, in these little moments, we just get a little taste of what it's like to be intimate with Jesus. You get up and read your Bible, and as you read your Bible, you hear something from the Lord, and the, God, the Lord speaks to you, and you just, you just feel in your heart the joy of, of hearing something from God and knowing God and heaven is the fullness of that, where every moment is a new experience of the knowledge of God. What makes heaven wonderful is that Christ is there. 
is that we're united with him, that in that moment of glorification, we become like him and we're fully intimate with him. We experience the fullness of joy that comes with Jesus Christ. And he's saying, we're longing for that day. We're waiting for him to return because he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Well, how do we know he's going to do this? Because he's got the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, meaning Death will be subjected to him. All powers and principalities will be subjected to him. He will win once and for all, and those who know him will be on the winning side. What is the point of all of that? All of that is that there are people who are living for the kingdom. They're living for kingdom pursuits. As you've often heard it said, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. What Paul's saying is find some people. Find some people who love Jesus or living for him. Find some people who when you talk to them, you want to be more engaged in kingdom work. They're not constantly motivating you to give your life for something other than that. They're motivating you to give your life for the kingdom. Find and follow those who live for Christ and his kingdom. Now, now here's the reason this matters so much. It's not only because we cannot do it alone. It's because we are constantly being pulled away by our own flesh, our own sin, and the constant pull of the culture. This is why Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world. Why? Because if you're just passive, what's going to happen in your passivity is you're just going to be conformed to the world. The only way you're not conformed to the world is if you're specifically, overtly being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're with people who are encouraging you to think about the kingdom. Church, listen to me. You have to have people around you who are living for Christ and his kingdom. This is why Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. You know what that means? Don't stop going to church. Don't. I'm going to say that as long as I'm here, I'm going to say this a thousand times to you. Every time I sit down with someone and talk to them about the way in which they have walked away from Jesus Christ, almost inevitably, it is not simply a failure to be at church. It is a failure to be engaged in a group of people at church who are walking alongside you. You you can show me someone who comes to church, but if they are not engaged in a smaller group of people who are watching over them, they are in danger, and so are you. Do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, but it says, exhort one another day after day. Speak life into each other. Hebrews 3.13 says this, encourage one another day after day, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have to have people speaking into our lives. Couples, can I just say something to you? Particularly young couples, you need an older couple. You've got to have an older couple. You need some people in your life who are showing you how to do this. Singles, in the midst of all of the cultural pressure, you need some people who are going to walk with you and encourage you and, and plead with you to be about the kingdom. Older couples and senior adults, can I tell you, Here in these days of your life, you need people around you who are not just pleading with you to go on trips and see the leaves change, but are giving themselves to kingdom work. You've got people in your life saying, hey, let's let's do something for the kingdom. I don't know how much time we have left. Let's do something together for the kingdom. 
Let's get engaged in a ministry of the church. Let's volunteer in the children's ministry, the, a student ministry. Let's do something for the kingdom. You need those people in your life. There's only so many trips to Branson you can take. You need some people who are pleading with you to go for the kingdom. Students, listen to me. Listen to me. You're about to start another school year. The direction you go will be determined by the people you surround yourself with. Why don't you pray to God this morning that he would give you some people who love Jesus, who are going after the kingdom. Wouldn't it be great if you students just made a commitment and said, listen, I'm, I'm entering into a new school year. I'm going to find some people and follow them who are living for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. If you don't have any, pray for God to give you some. Since I was meditating on this message this week, I just, and I'll be, I'll be done after this, I, I just could not stop thinking about the fact that I am, by God's grace, a product of the men who have invested in me. That by God's grace, he's allowed me to be in a family of good and godly men. He has given me other men that have poured into my life. Some of them I've gone after and said, listen, I need you. Would you spend some time with me? Others have gone after me and just said, listen, I want to be involved in your life. But by God's grace, these men are the ones who have made me who I am. The reality is, is that following Jesus Christ is a lot like the seven summits. That you cannot make it alone. You must have a church. You must have some people who are with you. And let me ask you this. Do you have those people? And I think another question is, are you one of those people? But I think the point of this text is this. Are you living life with some people who are following Christ and living for his kingdom? I want to beg of you. If you don't have them, pray that God would give them for you. Pursue them. Go after them. Be engaged in the church. That's where you find them. Find and follow those who live for Christ and his kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.